Hello and namaste. I'm Peter Furco, and this is Peter's Podcast, where we talk about real yoga, actual happiness, and deep living. Thanks for joining me. Incarnation by Peter Furco. Chapter 1. Ryoko and Joey. Washington, D.C., 2038. Joey's thoughts were interrupted by a sudden jerk. His driver cursed, then apologized. Joey looked up and saw a mob blocking the way to the Buddhist temple where his wife's ultimate nothingness would be affirmed. In the street and on the sidewalks of the block, that nothingness was being passionately denied by thousand fans holding Ryoko's picture the one from Newsweek's latest cover. All were longing for a reprieve that gave them back the hero who had turned television from a cesspool of self-indulgence into the most powerful vehicle for change the world had ever known. Joey slouched deeper into the soft leather seat and resumed brooding behind his purse sunglasses, the silver hinges highlighting the plentiful flecks of gray. He replayed in his mind the last thing his wife said to him. She had called out from the hospital bed, He turned and asked, What is it, love? She gazed at him, and in her eyes, he saw the essence of the teenage girl he had fallen in love with almost 50 years ago. What? he repeated, smiling. She smiled back and said, Thank you for being Joey Co. It was not idle. It was not sentimental. It was like the conclusion of a transaction, and he couldn't quite let go of the strange feeling of deja vu it left in with. Lucy Lubchik stepped out of the car ahead. She twirled the rusty blonde ponytail to gather it into a single curl and turned a sympathetic smile on the crowd before looking to the car behind hers, which held the widower. Billy joined her from the opposite side of the car. She took off Billy's baseball cap and threw it on the back seat. He entwined his mahogany-colored hand with Lucy's pale counterpart, their matching rings kissing. They walked back to Joey's car, and Billy opened the door for Joey, helping him out and placing him between them. They were a cape protecting him from the reality of the event. The driver came around to close the back door as they walked away. He leaned in and picked up the New York Times that lay folded on the back seat. Settling back in behind the steering wheel, he glanced at the page before turning to the sports section. Atop the obituaries columns was a photo of Ryoko Kimura, receiving a special Emmy as the founder of Veritage. India, 1988. A 17-year-old with a shock of black hair sat with his schoolmates in the sun facing his guru. The Indian sun beat down on the boys, and they shifted restlessly on their blankets. Krishna Anand ran his hair pointlessly over his incorrigible hair and looked intently at the guru. His teacher was talking about something that the boy thought might actually be useful for a change, something that might help in his ruminations about staying in Tumkur to be near the object of his teen obsession, the girl Kamalita. Krishna and his fellow students' circumstances were about to change as they approached the final days of their Guru Kula, the traditional Hindu education that gives students a foundation in philosophy and an attitude toward living honorably out in the world. Soon they would leave school and move on toward adulthood and worldly pursuits. 
Krishna was drawn to Kamalita, but he also longed to go to the university to study his two previous passions, computers and TV. Before Kamalita lit up on his radar, he had even dreamed of going to America to study. He wanted his teacher's advice, but mentioning Kamalita in front of his friends would get him kitted and mocked as only teenagers can do. He decided on a roundabout approach. He would talk about work and let it lead to the question of staying or going. He raised his hand and asked the rotund holy man sitting in the only shade on the patio, Guruji, how does one know one's dharma? How should I decide what work to do in life? The teacher's voice was high and sweet like flute tones. Karma works through you to pick your dharma, young Krishna. You do not have to determine it. The world is telling its fantastic story. The karma is the action, the dharma the roles. You are a player in a cast of billions. It was an intriguing idea, and Krishna set aside his current conundrum to consider the larger implication of his teacher's words. Finally, he said, That makes me feel so insignificant, but in my heart I feel I have an important place in the world. Your wisdom is sound, Krishna, but your perspective reflects your youth, the teacher answered. Then he turned his gaze to include the rest of the boys, one who was dozing off and a couple who were swatting at flies. He spoke despite their lack of attention. If you take the multitude of stones that forms a bridge, each one plays a critical role, yet is one of many. If you look at the flowers in a field, each radiates with complete beauty, whether it ends up as an admired individual blossom in this vase here, or remains part of a blanket of color in the meadow. Krishna remembered his main objective and tried to steer the teacher back toward his question, blurting out, So are you saying, Guruji, that it does not matter what I do in life? As you have studied, young Krishna, you must learn to trust the inspiration coming from meditation. Then apply your intellect to choose the course you believe is right. That trust makes it easier to swim with the current of karma, not back and forth questioning it. But don't important choices matter, say if I stay in my town or move to another land? Every moment offers you choices. Some seem insignificant, like whether you take another piece of naan from the breadbasket. Others seem like they will change the course of your life, like choosing to stay in your town or move elsewhere. Ultimately, though, it is impossible with our limited perspective to know which are significant. Two boys started giggling as they pointed at a young girl walking a short distance away. One punched the other in the shoulder. A look from their teacher made both boys sit tall and stare at the ground ahead. The teacher looked back and saw that Krishna was struggling with the vagueness of his advice. Krishna, make your best decision and do not worry about the outcome. Leave every choice as though you had just decided whether or not to have another piece of naan. But what if I make the wrong decision, he said wondering what would happen if he left Kamalita for a while to go study in America. Around every stone of choice you throw into the infinite river of karma, the karma will continue to flow. You cannot interrupt life's ongoing story, dear boy. Krishna was sitting with his knees drawn in, chin in hands, and fingers touching his forehead above the bridge of his chiseled nose. Then, as though a message had been delivered, his eyes lit up. So we do what we think is best, and everything adjusts, like the universe is writing a new ending to a TV show. The comment brought giggles from the rest of the boys. The teacher approved, though. You're clever, Krishna. That is a good metaphor. The guru let the image set before adding a nuance. 
But do not mistake time for a linear path like the road between here and Mumbai. Time is also a player in the great drama of life. Its role is to provide the appearance of progression. Our stories need time to be interesting. In truth, all things have already happened. All things are happening now. All things will happen into eternity. Like reruns on your beloved television, Krishna. It is time that lets us experience life as we do. Krishna stared into his teacher's eyes and nodded slowly as he imagined a TV show spinning off endless variations. A cowbell beaten by the cook sounded lunch and broke Krishna's meditation. The guru released the boys. You see, time pretends we have progressed. However, I'm not sure you understand any better. Very well, enjoy your lunch. Namaste. A chorus of namaste rang from the young teens as they jumped up and ran toward the dining building, which was pouring forth an aroma of curry and freshly baked naan. Washington, D.C., 2038. All the religions do that, Joey said, gazing through the golden Macallan scotch in his glass. Do what? Billy asked. Get stuck wearing the same clothes they did ages ago. Don't they know that those robes are just what everybody wore back then when the symbols became dogma? Lucy laughed. You mean if a religion started in the 80s, everybody would be wearing shoulder pad jackets and have ponytails coming off the sides of their heads? Joey couldn't help smiling at Lucy's big laugh, but replied, Look at Catholics with their Roman-era robes, or drive through South Williamsburg. It's 19th century Poland. I'm sorry, that's not cool, he said. Then he added under his breath, it just felt weird seeing her in robes and seeing her in a box. A tear rolled down his cheek and he turned his head away from Lucy. Lucy got up from her chair and moved around the coffee table to slide up close on Joey, to Joey on the couch. She hugged him from the side and pulled his head onto her shoulder. She looked beautiful, she whispered. Billy had escaped his jacket and tie and was wearing his baseball cap with the Veritage logo. He watched his wife comfort their best friend. There was a palpable absence in the apartment without Ryoko. Lucy looked over at Billy and opened her eyes a little wider. He softly shrugged his shoulders and lowered his gaze. He noticed today's newspaper on the table. Was that time story yesterday accurate about how you met? Billy asked. I didn't read it. What did it say? Just tell us how you met, Lucy piped up. We met on the steps of the Met. The art museum? Billy clarified, wondering if it should be obvious. Yeah, I was just hanging out. We were teenagers at the time. She and her cousins started messing with me. It caught me by surprise. I was pretty shy, and here were these cute Japanese girls teasing me. The paper said she came up with your stage name, Billy reported with a lilt, as if asking for corroboration. Ha! That is so weird, Billy. I've been struggling all morning with something she said. You just solved it. What? Billy asked. He was never very confident about his intellectual skills. The last thing she said to me, now I get it. He paused, then smiled. It was about the day we met. He turned to Lucy, and his face lit up. Her cousins were visiting from Japan, and she made up a whole scenario. New York, 1991. Joseph Keats Jones sat on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He routinely rested here after visiting parts of the collection, which he was doing a lot during the summer after he graduated from high school. A gaggle of teenage Japanese girls sporting a cacophony of fashion accessories approached him. 
Though they were speaking Japanese, one of the girls turned and spoke to him in English without any accent. Yo, dude, what's your name? Joe K. Jones, yo, he answered, using a version of his name he was trying on as a nom de plume for his imagined future as a writer. One of the other girls said something in Japanese, including the name Yoko Ono, and the whole group giggled. The first girl replied in Japanese to her friends, laughing, then turned back to Joseph and said, My friend from Tokyo says, You're the TV star Joko Jono. We'd know that smile anywhere. Joseph blushed. I wish, but I'm not. Dude, you look just like him, though. The other girls were all rattling on in Japanese. I'm Ryoko. I'm a TV special reporter. Too bad you're not Joko. We could go out and get chased by paparazzi. Joseph felt like a dream was taking place. One minute, he's a bored high school graduate. The next, he's considering playing make-believe with attractive playmates. He stared at the ground and looked for something to say in the flecked stone steps. There wasn't anything there. It left an uncomfortable pause. Well, at least let us take our picture with you, Ryoko said, and waved her girlfriends to come and sit around him. She stepped over to the handrail and snapped a photo, the plastic Polaroid spitting out a white image to be. Then she handed the camera to her friend and gave her instructions in Japanese. Ryoko sat next to Joseph and turned as if kissing him on the cheek. Her lips brushed him, and he felt a vibration run from his cheek to his pelvis. The whirring camera motor pushed out the next picture, and Ryoko fished a pen out of her vinyl knapsack. She handed Joseph the ghost portrait and said, Here, autograph please, to Ryoko, love Joko. Joseph took a deep breath that seemed to hold itself. When it finally released, he grinned, chuckled, then signed the square print and handed it to her. She read it aloud and laughed at the poetic symmetry. To Ryoko, love Joiko. He gazed at her as she watched the emerging picture. Ryoko was the most beautiful girl he had seen in his teen life. His cheek was still humming from her kiss. He sat up tall, heaved a nervous sigh, then whispered to her, I think we can escape the paparazzi in my penthouse. After dozens of city blocks of laughter, mock fights, pizza, dessert, and cups of tea, they dropped the Japanese entourage at a movie theater near his apartment on East 80th Street, where they watched a blockbuster about a rabbit. Joey and Ryoko used the time to make out in his bedroom, while in the next room, his parents complained about the show on TV. That's it for today's excerpt. You can hear more later on in Peter's podcast, or if you just can't wait, head over to amazon.com where you can find incarnation. Thanks.